Welcome to the Lovejoy Hour, sponsored by Cooker 100 Degree Boiling Hot Water, straight from your kitchen tap. Such a cool gadget. And I'm sure you've seen them all now and know they are not dangerous. Hmm. Push and turn mechanisms mean young kids can't burn themselves. Uh, they're just a great gadget. 100 Degree Boiling Hot Water, uh, chilled filtered water, chilled sparkling filtered water it's all there for more details go to cooker.co.uk i love mine now before i introduce dan davis i hope you're enjoying these podcasts there's, there's a mixture of celebrities as you know i do that and and then there's stuff that i'm curious about i'd love to get your feedback on whether you're enjoying these subjects i try to cover uh recently i put one out on diet and fitness um i put one out on politics which i which i really enjoyed um uh, alternative proteins was another one i did i love doing those ones i think they're really interesting for me um it's just you know it's just subjects i think about i think oh yeah i could do something on that please let me know what you think anyway because i want to make sure that everyone's enjoying them today's hour i'm curious about the health of the body uh this is a conversation with dan davis in fact it's his third conversation on the podcast he's the first guest i've had on three Times. Dan is a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester, and I like talking to him about the human body and how it works. It's always so fascinating to me. Dan has a new book out called The Secret Body, How the New Science of Human Body is Changing the Way We Live. Um, it's a great excuse to get him back on for another conversation. Here's Dan. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. You're the first guest I've ever had on three times. So um, congratulations for that. Well done. How are you? I'm great, Tim. I, I didn't realise I was the first guest on on for three times. That's that's a huge honour. That's going to go at the top of my CV. And uh, <laughs> thanks a lot. Now it's lovely, lovely to chat to you again, Tim. Uh, before we get stuck into the book, um, remind us what you do day to day. Yeah, I'm a professor of immunology at the University of Manchester. Um, I study how the immune system works. We, we, uh, we have these very high-powered microscopes. They're called super-resolution microscopes. And we watch how immune cells interact with other cells. And we look at the sort of molecular details of how that process plays out, trying to understand how an immune cell detects signs of disease and then how it might deal with that, like how an immune cell might kill a cancer cell, for example. And, and we study the sort of minuscule processes that are involved in all of that. Uh, and have you had any breakthroughs in um, seeing anything recently? <laughs> so, uh, well, great, Tim. That's, that's the whole hour sorted right there. <laughs> well, you know, if, if only I could just show you the slides, you know, we could go to slide one through 50. Um, well, you know, one of the... I mean, you know, it is true that, you know, I have a team of about 12 people. So there is a lot going on, uh, hopefully, in, a, across all of that. But I'll, I'll, um, I'll just maybe highlight one thing. This is by uh, uh, a, a PhD student in my lab from Greece, uh, Alexandros Karapadzakis. So he just, he just did this work to now earn his PhD. And he was looking at um, uh, uh, a way of getting an immune cell to effectively kill a cancer cell. Uh, and we used a particular um, uh, a reagent called an antibody. So your body naturally makes antibodies. 
uh, as you'll know now, and now antibodies is, is, is a term everybody knows, which is wonderful because previously I'd have to, you know, spend time explaining that, but people know antibodies are part of your immune response, but also you can use antibodies as a medicine. In, in fact, antibodies are uh, seven of the top uh, 10 best-selling medicines. So antibodies are also used as medicines. And he was working on a particular antibody being developed to help immune cells kill off cancer cells. Uh, and and he, while he was looking at how this uh, uh, antibody worked, um, he actually uh, discovered something quite unexpected. I just need to give you a couple of minutes of background. So when an immune cell kills a cancer cell, one of the things that we noticed happens, or others as well have noticed happens, is that the sort of receptor molecules on an immune cell that detect the cancer, they often then, after the immune cell has killed the cancer, they often then remove the receptor molecules that detected that it was a cancer. Now that seems, um, you know, a bit, a bit, that seems like the immune system wouldn't want to do that. Why would it remove from, from its, uh, the receptor molecules that could tell that that was a cancer? And so companies were thinking, well, you know, maybe, that, maybe, that's, maybe if, we, if we prevented that from happening, we could get immune cells to kill cancer even better. If we stop them losing the receptor molecules that could detect cancer, that should probably help them kill the cancer better. So they were developing medicines to stop this process happening to stop immune cells losing the receptor that detects cancer. But uh, we, we, we found that actually losing those receptor molecules that detect the cancer actually boosts the immune response because what happens is the immune cell sticks to a cancer cell, it kills it, and then it needs to chop off those receptors that detected it was cancer. So you imagine two spheres stuck together, the immune cell and the cancer cell, and then it kills it. And now it has to chop off the receptor molecules at that contact so the immune cell can detach from the cancer cell and then go and kill another one. So losing those receptor molecules boosts the immune response. And this uh, uh, Greek uh, PhD student in my lab, Alexandros Karamsakis, in fact found the way of not stopping that process, but, but not, not stopping the receptor molecules being lost, but actually enhancing it and getting the, getting the immune cells to go detach from one cancer cell and then go and kill another one more efficiently. Uh, and he, to be honest, you know, we kind of stumbled, stumbled across this by chance. We, we didn't, we, we were just watching cells bumping around. And then he saw that this particular type of antibody could allow the immune cells to go from one cell to another, to another, to another more efficiently. So, you know, so that was, that's, that's, uh, yeah. So he didn't, he didn't change the immune cell. He just found ones which were more efficient. Yeah, he, he, we added an antibody that actually has a slight uh, modification to it that allows this process to happen more efficiently. So, yeah, so it, it's, um, yeah, he doesn't, we don't change the immune cell or the cancer cell. We add a reagent, an antibody that makes this process happen uh, even more efficiently than it normally would. Dan, can I can I I can I insist that the answer to this next question is only thirty seconds long? But you say he's from <laughs> you say he's from Greece, and I don't want to get into the weeds with Brexit. But is that gonna is Brexit gonna affect people from Greece coming over here to do these studies and things? Yeah, it uh, is actually. Um, you know, wherever you sit in, in in the political landscape, it does definitely affect us in in in, in a deep way, and it and it's already. 
it's all it, it's really uh, hit home actually you know every year one or two phd students roughly come into my lab and, and very often sometimes they are from the uk but sometimes they are from other countries and it has become a lot lot more difficult uh to um get have people from other countries in europe join my team and so you have to then think about you know depends what your view is really on what the benefits are of having different uh young people from from different countries moving around uh science labs me for me personally i think it's it's hugely uh a wonderful thing to have people moving around different 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 cultures and different countries um you know when i was young i spent uh three and a half years working in in harvard in in the usa and you know that was a hugely formative time for me so you know and I'm, but i'm back here in the uk hopefully contributing to science so i think yeah I, you know it, you know people obviously you know it was a 50 50 split so everyone's going to have their own views about about brexit and it's it's a multifaceted thing and i realize i'm going on more than 30 seconds so. <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I, th- I think it might have been a 50 50 but i think if you ask the majority of the public if they would like young people to be able to move around the world to help with science i think it would be much more 90 10 saying yeah for sure that should happen I, and i think these things should have been added into the argument right the other thing i need to talk to you about quickly is the growing anti-vax movement which seems to be i mean i don't know whether this is true or not but it seems to be getting bigger and bigger and with the coronavirus there seems to be a, 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 a i even saw some graffiti on the wall the other day which said 60 percent of people 60 uh, percent of people have died of covid have been vaccinated graffiti i mean i haven't seen graffiti like that in a long time because the graffiti ends up on the internet now on social media so so what do you think about this growing movement of people saying if you t- taking the vaccination it's bad for you yeah well I, I think I think there are different sort of levels of, of anti-vax uh, uh, movement, if you like. So uh, you know, there, there's some there's some kind of extreme views which might be, you know, the the you know that there's some kind of conspiracy happening to to make us have a virus or a vaccine, and and we might, you know, really it's caused by some weird thing like phone masks or something. So that is outrageous, and we need to you know communicate well to make it clear that that is not the case uh, uh and and so for for, the, for that kind of extreme opinion i think it's really important that we you know discuss how the immune system works what the virus does how it moves around and and what a vaccine really is but there is also i think it's also true that there are some you know it's not it all of us i think were you know it's easy to relate to the idea that you could be concerned that that something as, as as devastating as the pandemic happens, and then and then we have a vaccine very fast. And it, I think it's legitimate to be to have some element of concern about what you know what whether or not to take a vaccine. So I so I'm not you know I wouldn't I don't like I don't you know, every scientists have different ways of dealing with this. I'm, my view is that we shouldn't belittle the idea that people are worried about taking vaccines because I do think it's understandable. Um, and so what I would say is that. Um, you know, millions and millions of people have had the vaccine. The, 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 the risks are very small compared to and hugely outweighed by the problems caused by the virus itself. Not least, you know, never mind the, the, the sadness of people you know, dying, but even, even the things that are associated with long COVID. Um, and, and, it, and also, I think it's important to get across that although the vaccine did appear really fast, you know, within a year or year and a half, it's not true that 
it came out of nowhere. You know, it, you know, we centuries basically of immunological research of studying how the immune system work has got us to this point. And even things like the mRNA vaccine, which is an entirely new type of vaccine. That's the Pfizer one, um, particularly, you know, it was for 20 years, people have been developing an mRNA type of vaccine. And, and even before this pandemic, it was at the point where we knew that an mRNA type of vaccine could trigger a robust immune response. Yes, it hadn't been tried out as a vaccine against a, a, a virus. But it, so these things did not come out of nowhere. It wasn't that there was a sudden rush and we're, 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 we're suddenly injecting people with sort of half-baked concoctions of chemicals. It's definitely, it's nowhere near that situation. It, these things have been studied uh, for a very long time. And, and now, you know, it's... There's no question that vaccines are saving saving lives, you know, absolutely. And and so yeah, yeah. I think Dan, that, I, I must say, on this very podcast, you predicted there would be various different vaccines coming along. It wouldn't. You said it won't just be one. There'll be myriad vaccines coming along, and everyone and they'll work in slightly different ways. And do you think you actually predicted this? So well done to you. So yeah, yeah, and and I think I, I wrote, yeah. I, I mean, I remember that Tim, and and I and I think that you know we still haven't even seen the fullness of all of that. There are still other vaccines uh, uh, coming coming through, and what's more. We're only now beginning to dig into the, the details of, you know, how effective each vaccine is and, and especially in terms of what, 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 how different people may respond to them. So I think in time, you know, right now the vaccines are saving lives and, and certainly it's of my opinion that people should take the vaccine. Uh, but in time, there's, an, there's going to be an explosion of information about how all these different vaccines have worked and how they've uh, affected different people's immune systems. And, you know, we're going to have an even more fine-tuned understanding of how the immune system works and how to tweak our powers to fight off new kinds of illnesses in, in the future. And the, the the final thing on this is one of my friends who's very vocal on this on our WhatsApp group about how we shouldn't all be doing it. He's saying, uh, and we're, we all keep pointing out we've all done it, so it's too late. But he keeps saying, yeah, but you haven't looked at the long term. Do you think that there is a long term or do you think now we've all had it and they haven't had any effects, we're pretty safe? I mean, I do understand that there's an uncertainty to how things play out, and 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 so and in history there have been medical tragedies. So we don't want to. I don't want to belittle that. You know, it's definitely, but the, the, these 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 medicines have been tested in animals. There are millions of people having taken them. There's we have a very very sort of molecular detailed understanding of how they work, of what they're doing. They're not. You know, they're not. They're not the, they're not a medicine that's that's affecting. Uh, we haven't seen any sign that they're affecting something you know unexpected that may have some long term. We haven't seen any of that. So right. it you know it really looks like this is a, a, a safe uh, thing to be doing. And so you know hopefully that can alleviate people's concerns. But but again you know don't I don't want to belittle that. I mean you know you you have to. It, it, it's it's hard for all of us to deal with the situation we're in. But, mm. but having said that, you know, look at the effects of long COVID, where there's no question that there's the potential for long-term problems. And so, you know, you've got to weigh up the, 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 the minuscule risks versus what's clearly a much bigger risk. 
Dan, I really want to get into your book and I know we're going to run out of time if we're not careful because we talk too much. But just quickly, what is long COVID? Can you do it quickly, though, because I want to get onto your book? What, why is long COVID? How can some people get rid of it and some people it just stays in your body? Yeah, in short, we just don't know. We just don't know. And my own uh, uh, view of that is, to be honest, it's probably it's probably something that was uh, there in other uh, virus infection situations because we certainly hear cases of people being having some um you know poorly described feeling of being very very tired and, and not able to do some things after 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 an infection or even with some unknown cause uh, but now it's if you know the great tragedies have come from this pandemic but something that's good about it is that we will we would it, it's a recognized process now of trying to understand what happens to people after these infections in the long term. So at the moment, we don't understand that much about it, to be honest. But it's really good that it's on the map and people are investigating it. Perfect. All right. Um, the secret body, uh, before I get stuck. By the way, I've got to say, I love it. All your books, if you want your brain to work, read one of Dan's books because they just start reading it. And I start, th- I've got so many bizarre questions for you, but you always manage to somehow uh, articulate this stuff you're talking about to open up my mind to think about things. Explain the concept of the book. Thanks, Tim. So essentially, uh, I, uh, the book. For me, it really feels like everything is kicking off right now in in terms of understanding the human body especially. So I think we're at an enormous pivotal moment in understanding what we are. So and, and and in the book, what I've done is I've sort of broken that down into six areas, you know, cells, the embryo, organs, the brain, the microbiome, and then our genes and and other codes that that govern what we do. And I think in every one of those areas, it's exploding in what we understand. And some of that comes about through new technologies. Um, So essentially, I, I chart this progress of a new technology has been developed Uh, For example, in cells, I talk about new kinds of microscopes that see better than ever before in how cells work and the fact that cells are shooting out packets of of molecules and doing all kinds of stuff that we could never have dreamed of. And and then I think that from this new understanding in all these different bits of of the human body, we're we're coming to a point where these things are going to really deeply affect um, how we live. Uh, so, for example, you know, you know, something that something that people are familiar with would be the idea that you might have a genetic test to I- indicate uh, whether you're likely to, to to succumb to some illness or other. Uh, and famously, uh, Angelina Joni, for example, had both her breasts removed when she was was told from her family history and a genetic mutation in a gene called BRCA1, she had an 87% chance of breast cancer. So she had surgery to act on that information. And I think that all these different aspects of understanding the human body are going to throw up a, an enormous number of questions and decisions and, and things that we personally have to deal with, like that decision Angelina Joni had to make, but a million of those kinds of decisions based on information about us personally and then w- whether or how we act on, on that kind of information. So essentially, I suppose that's, 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 why, that's why I felt I really had to write this book, actually, because it's just really exciting. It's really kicking off and it's really going to affect us very deeply. 
Yeah, you mentioned the Angelina Jolie one there, and, and you sort of mentioned this in your book as well. The insurance companies are going to have a lot to say, I think, in the future, aren't they? Because, you know, we're talking about anti-vaxxers there. You've got kids who are not allowed into schools, and I think it's America. I don't know if we're doing it over here because they've not vaccinated their children. When you go for health insurance in the future, they say you're going to take a blood test. I assume that's how they're fine or whatever test it is because the tests are getting advanced. And they say you've got this gene and you're going to have to remove your breast, otherwise we're not going to insure you you're going holy shit i mean that's where we're going isn't it and uh so down that that that's a slippery slope isn't it which is why you're talking about these things yeah i think i think it's a slippery slope in terms of how society uh deals with these with these issues in terms of how i think i think there are many levels at which this plays out so as you as you highlight there's there's the issue of how we how we do insurance for, for healthcare for travel or whatever for example especially in countries like the us where it's a very different system to here but there are also there are also other levels at which this plays out so for example it's essentially an existential crisis for the nhs if these if these if the cost of doing all these things is very expensive i mean people are talking about the nhs coming into problems because um, because obviously the workload is incredible and, 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 and it's really hard. But it's also true that new medicines are ever, have an ever-increasing complexity. And, it, and it's not that they're necessarily going to trickle down to become cheap in time. It's some of these processes and diagnostic tools are inevitably going to be very expensive, especially if they're very personalised. Um, so that's, that's another issue that, that I think society and governments need to talk about. It's also, though, I think for me, what's, what's most important about all of that is, is the fact that it affects us very personally. So that, no, uh, yes, we need to define kind of the ways in which society is going to deal with all this onslaught of biological information. But I think what's really hard, hard for each of us to deal with which you highlighted just now in, in, in the debate around vaccines or, or other things to do with you know, mask wearing, all these things, personal decision-making about our own health is, is really hard. You know, if you, if you were told that you have uh, a one in four chance of getting cancer in the next 20 years, you know, what, how would you act on that information? Or if you were told you had a one in five chance of getting Alzheimer's in the next five years, and we, what, how would you act on all this information? And it's coming, whether, whether, you, whether we want, whether we want personal information or not, I think it's going to be there. And, and then and we're going to have to internalise that in, in, into the sort of framework of how we live our lives. I think, I think deep down, science really, really defines kind of how we think about ourselves. You know, it, it used to be that you, that you would, if you were ill, you would think, you know, I had some imbalance of the four humours or, or or, or, or we used to think of mental health as, as uh, some problem might be down to, you know, you've, you've been taken over by some evil spirit. And we don't think about that now, of course. Yeah. And now we have a, an understanding of, of molecules in blood that might make you feel this or that way. So, so the science of, of health and, and, and the human body really deeply defines how we think about ourselves. So, so that, I think, is why it's it's kind of important if you like to to think to, to know where this will come from to understand what your cells are what your organs are because it really affects how you think about w what you are it's funny actually because i signed up to 
what is it me and 23 or 23 and me i signed up to to, to that thing so i've had had a mini taste of, of it i probably shouldn't have done that because they've now got my dna and they're probably cloning another me somewhere but uh, <laughs> I, I spend too much time on the internet sorry Dad. but there's but there's um that they, they every now and then they update it and they send it and they say you know I, i'm in pretty good health but they sort of say things like you will not like kebabs or something like that but they <laughs> actually in fairness they predict that i didn't like coriander and i don't know how they've done that because that's true but most of it is is pretty bullshit i think but it's like this little thing where you start the first thing you do is go am i going to get a heart attack am i going to have alzheimer's am i going to and, it, and, it, and it, i don't know how accurate those tests are i assume they're not that accurate at the moment but but it's a mini taste of what we're going to have in the future i suppose yeah i think i think that's it i think that it's um it's the direction of travel it's where things are going and it's going to get more and more precise especially you know so as you say at the moment you could get your genome sequence of 23 and me and and um and you know there'll be this whole this whole cloned army of Tim Lovejoy's uh, like execute order sixty six going to like slay all slay all the people in charge of the world later. But um, apart from that, it's also true that uh, uh, many other things about you uh, hold hold this kind of information. Um, so, for example, currently we don't understand exactly. Uh, how how your microbiome, which is the, all the bacteria and viruses and fungi that live on on your body and in your body, we don't understand necessarily exactly how that in how that works with your own body's cells. But we do know that the contents of your gut microbiome, for example, which is actually, to put it bluntly, just an analysis of the bacteria in your feces, then that correlates with many different. Uh, uh, diseases that you may or may not have. So we don't understand exactly how that plays out. We don't know what's causative. It's a correlation, but it definitely informs something about you. Well, there are a couple of really good studies on that, for example, where an analysis of a person's microbiome uh, very specifically informs um, what kinds of diet might work well for you. So, you know, different people, obviously a lot of people are on a diet, some kind of diet, and yet you know, we're not necessarily all getting much thinner. And that's because there's a lot of personal differences in how we respond to different kinds of foods. And so your analysis of microbiome might tell you, oh, you know, yeah, you, you could eat bananas, but rice is particularly uh, uh, spikes up your sugar levels or whatever. So, you know, and for different people, someone else will be, oh, no, bananas really spiking up your sugar, go for rice, right? So this kind of information might be analyzable from your microbiome. And, and there are many, many examples like that. In, in the book, one of the big sweeping movements that I talk about is something called the human cell atlas, which is an enormous global movement, if you like, to analyze the 37 trillion cells of the human body. And from that level of understanding, we will unquestionably have a new sense of, of differences between people's cells. And, and then of course, how that relates to different kinds of illnesses. So a blood sample from you might be analyzed in the future. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about in decades to come. A blood sample from you might be analyzed according to the very specific cells you have, what state they're in. And that might in well inform uh, um, you or a physician, uh, you know, about the, your state of health. And for example, the particular configuration that your immune system is currently in to, to inform uh, uh, which type of medicine might work well for you, for example. 
I've talked. I've talked to, as you know, I talked to Professor Tim Spector. You mentioned in your book um, on this podcast a couple of times. I've been on his trial as well, so I had all my feces analyzed. Oh, did, did you say you talked to Tim Spector two times, and I've been on three times? Yeah. Okay. Thank, thanks, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You've outdone him. But the one thing that I think is exciting, and the thing that you sort of hint at in the book, or you talk about a bit in the book, is is the fact that the the bacteria that's living in us, we realise, is now part of us we can't really survive without it and you know if you're talking about this is where my head starts spinning after reading your book if you're talking about tim lovejoy as as a whole part of me i have a hand i have an eye i have uh, a hair not much and and I, and I have a foot and i also have bacteria living in me and without that i'm not tim lovejoy because as, as you say in the in the book if you take a mice and you give it you make it so it has no bacteria and it's all clear it's very skinny it doesn't really work very well we we need the bacteria to survive so we're starting to believe this bacteria is us right is that is that where we're coming from it, it, we need it so badly yeah that's true so you know it's part and parcel of who and what we are are all the non-human cells are, are part of us but what's what i think is just to add to what you said is that it's changing enormously so that you know the the, the microbiome within us changes changes if i if i move house or or, or go and live somewhere else my microbiome changes by what we eat so you know, we're only that, that. I mean, that's what I think is uh, emerges from considering all these different parts of the human body that it's all kicking off in the sense that we're, we're like you just said, you just said, you know, we, we're suddenly realizing that there's a whole part of Tim Lovejoy that is sort of not Tim Lovejoy, and yet it is. And we're just about coming to that realization. And so, big concepts from that are opening up could we use those those non-human cells analyze them what do they mean about what you know who you are why are they different from the versions i've got etc and where i what i think it feels like right now is that so you so like in, in at, the, at the turn of the 20th century physics was exploding right physics was physics was einstein was was coming up with new ideas about you know relativity quantum things and 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 one of the things was that um uh, a guy called Hertz, for example, was studying electromagnetic waves and, and realized that, yeah, there's light that we can see. Oh, but there's also X-rays and radio waves that we can't see. And, and that was explosive. But he didn't know what it would actually mean. He, he, could, you know, he, he actually died very young, I think around 36. There's no way he could have realized that that would eventually lead to the TV, the radio and the internet. And I think that that's where we are in biology, that we're, everything is, is in that kind of explosive phase with big new concepts opening up that you've suddenly got all these non-human cells that are part of you. And exactly where that's going to take us in 100 years from now, it's really, really hard to know. But I bet it will be, yeah, it's just going to be insane. Like it's going to be going from the discovery of, of X-rays and radio waves up to the internet. And that's going to be us. We're going to be, now we just know that there is a microbiome essentially and it's doing something. But where that really takes us, is re it's, it's hard to know, but it's going to, it's so explosive right now. It just has to, it's going to be so uh, are deeply meaningful uh, mm. in practical terms down the line in ways that we can't even quite yet imagine.
Um, for anyone who's interested, uh, the Tim Spector, the first one is the one where he really gets into talking about that. the second one. He talks about diet, but but he talks all about it. And 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 if you if you can't be bothered to listen to the podcast, his general um, advice for diet is eat a varied diet, lots of fruit and vegetables, and make sure it's very very varied. Uh, I think it was what's the expression people say now: eat the rainbow. Make sure you got lots of different colours on your plate, and and make sure you have a a, a healthy culture inside you. Um, but your another bit getting onto this: what is Tim Lovejoy, the bit in your book, which has completely blown me away, is when you start talking about cancer, obviously your specialist subject. Now, my brother died of cancer, or you know, I've told you before on this podcast. And when you think of cancer, I think about it like it's measles, or I think about it like it's like it's um, uh, COVID. It's a virus. However, you make the point in the book, which which kind of we all know, but we don't like to do it. It is me, which is if cancer is me, which is my cells, which are which have gone rogue. Now, in it, you use this word that you were talking about the um, my cells coming along to try and kill the cancer cells and the cancer cells trying to avoid being killed. And it's like, hold on. I am trying to kill myself from within inside with cancer. I'm not trying to kill myself. I've I've just gone rogue. Right. Is this right? I'm not actually trying. The end game of the cancer cell is not to kill the host. It's just me gone a bit mental, but the, the, my immune cells are coming along to try and kill the cancer cells and my cancer cells are trying to avoid being killed. This whole game is being played out inside my body, which and the only bit of it is, is it's all me playing out the game. This is what is absolutely, excuse my language, fucking with my head. I am playing out this game. And meanwhile, there's this Tim Lovejoy bit, which is talking to you, which has literally no idea what's going on in my body. I know nothing about what's happening inside me. So um, have I got that sort of right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I really, it is, it is disconcerting to think that all of this stuff is playing out in you you know that that, that, that your immune cells are fighting off you know, a cell that might be on its way to becoming cancerous and at the same time some bacteria in your gut is like producing some sort of chemical that's particularly important for for digestion or or, or training your immune system or something and at the same time you know nerves are are, are firing off any number of chemicals we don't you know there's so much going on and it's all happening within you and it's and it's it's you can't really relate to it. You can't, you know, so many so many questions that that that, that are there about how you're working that come from all this new stuff. No, nobody knows where you know if, if you can ride a bike and I can't. I mean, where's that in your brain? I mean, I, no one knows that. No one knows anything about that. So essentially, yeah, there's all this stuff going on, and it's all inside you, and it's and it's profound, and it affects you, and. And it's quite hard to, to get your head around. Oh, someone said to me not so long ago, and I thought this was, I, I heard it on something, um, by the way, and someone said, take an ant colony. Is it a colony or a nest or something or a beehive? And, and if you just take an individual ant, they can't live because they need the queen. They need everything. And so they say, we've got to stop looking at ants as individuals and start looking at as an ant colony. And that's how you, that's how I sort of, after reading your book, start picturing my body. I can't just have me. I've, I need my heart and all the, all these cells, these tiny little cells all seem to have their own life and seem to be doing their own thing. So one of them is the worker ant and another one is a, a warrior trying to kill off the cancer cells. And that's basically what I made up of, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's like, um, it's at every level. So if you go down to, you know, 
a protein molecule, one protein molecule on an immune cell would be able to say, recognize a protein molecule on a cancer cell. And then that triggers an event. That, that, that recognition happens. And a protein molecule sticking out of immune cell latches onto another protein molecule that sticks out of a cancer cell. And then that now, that's an event. That's a binding event between two molecules. Now it starts triggering other proteins to come around that first protein and stop activating enzymes would, would stick a, 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 another few atoms onto that protein, a phosphate group, another few atoms go onto it, signaling that that recognition has happened. Now the immune cell starts getting activated. And so, in, and then the immune cell will then secrete stuff and then other immune cells will come in. So this whole, and you've got, so you've gone from one protein sticking to one protein. Now an immune cell is switched on. Now it's switching on other immune cells. Now all these immune cells are moving and huddling around. Now they're secreting other stuff to try and kill the cancer cell. Now, some of these protein molecules are, might, might be affecting your, your mind. You might, you might have a fever, for example, if they were attacking a virus-infected cell. So what's going on in that fever? Oh, uh, molecules are being sensed by your nerves. They're firing off some pants in some particular way. It gives you a feeling. I mean, who knows how this feeling arrives? That then sends back messages to your muscles and your blood vessels. Oh, we need, we need to raise the temperature of the body. We're in some kind of attack situation. So... That might change your appetite, by the way, as well. It might change how you relate to other people. You might suddenly want someone to care for you. You're suddenly very nice to them. Can you help? Can you get me some water? You know, everything is is so entwined. That, this is all happening from just a couple of molecules in the beginning. And now yeah. it's affecting uh, like countless levels throughout your body. And taking a holistic understanding of that is really, really, really hard. And, you know, at the moment, to understand these kinds of things in a scientific way, you know, Tens of thousands of people would be working on that very first protein-protein binding event. Another 10,000 people will be working on what the immune cell is doing. Another 10,000 people will be working on what the fever response is. Another 10,000 people will be working on how muscles contract and how blood vessels dilate. So every bit of it is tackled in kind of small silos and groups of people. And it's quite hard to get a holistic view of what goes on during any, you know, as, as a human. So, yeah, that's that's uh, but it is quite wonderful to think about that. It, yeah, it's only it's just just very quickly on, on cancer. Why does cancer happen? Is it because our bodies because I'm producing cancer cells every day, aren't I? And I'm just getting rid of them. Is that is that correct? And then sometimes your body stops getting rid of them or they just start developing too many. What is cancer? How does that work? Okay, so essentially, when cells uh, uh, multiply, then um, the you know you, all of your cells have the same genetic information, the same genetic code. Twenty thousand genes of the human body, and you have a, inherited a particular version of those twenty thousand genes. And every cell has exactly the same set of genes. But when any cell multiplies, when it divides, then a few of the positions in that sequence of letters might change just a few of them and most of the time that does nothing uh, occasionally it might make a cell do something different and very occasionally a series of mutations might build up in 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 daughter cells that turn a cell to become cancerous which essentially means that it's lost its its own control on how often it divides and how many times it divides and then if that happens a cell would then become cancerous it would basically be dividing out of control so a clump of cells might appear, which would be a tumor, or, or, or a few cells in your blood might start to multiply in, a, in an excessive way. And then that would be a sort of blood-borne cancer, like a leukemia. And so it's an out-of-control 
multiplication of an of an individual cell that caused that that is essentially the cancer mm. and so it arises just through the way in which life itself works that, you, that every time something divides there are a few changes in the dna because that's that's how things change and evolve but because of that because of the way that is set up then an a, a, a side effect if you like of how life works is that cancer sometimes develops and your point about whether cells are sort of becoming cancerous very often in your body and you're you're deleting them um it's probably true to some extent but we don't know exactly how often that happens because actually it's really hard to measure you know how, how if your immune cell is very often killing off any cell that might might become cancerous it's pretty hard to detect that happening so we actually don't know how often a cell cells in your body might be on their way to becoming cancerous but what, what you know when we were talking before about how this kind of understanding affects how we see our lives i mean cancer is a really good example where because because we under you know because we understand what that disease is and how it works, then now we start to think about, okay, so if it's to do with variation in the genes that might by chance cause a cell to divide out of control, then things that might affect the rate at which that happens, sunlight, uh, chemicals, certain types of food perhaps, um, you know, our exposure to uh, uh, asbestos, or it, it, things that we know affects the... The, the DNA can change the mutation rate of DNA. We, we now know that that, and so now you're, when you feel sunlight on your skin, you, you, you know, it's warm, it's lovely, but you're also thinking, oh, maybe I should put some sun cream on. And so it changes. It really, the sort of details of how things are change how we live in a, in a, in a, in a, in a really deep way. Cause now you're, now people tend to be quite conscious of, 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 of sunlight feeling, feeling like it's lovely, but it also can cause cancer. Yeah, definitely. hundred percent. We're slathering our kids in it, aren't we? Um, and I do as well when I go out. Right. This, um, the beginning of the book and also the beginning of this conversation, you talk about the fact that we can, um, we've got better microscopes. Uh, and I was thinking about this, actually. We've got uh, amazing telescopes now, which can see for God knows how far in the future. And we've got amazing um, microscopes, which means we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I was looking it up and because um, it's a long time since I did biology lessons and we can see atoms. Then we saw electrons and nuclei, then to protons and neutrons. And now we've got something which I'd never heard of before, quark, quarks or something. What the hell? Like even, even smaller elements apparently we can see now as we keep going smaller and smaller. How do these machines actually work? Because I assume we've bent glass enough that... <laughs> that that it's now no longer um, glass. We're, how are we seeing in such detail? What is it that's happening? It, 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 what is it? <laughs> what are microscopes yeah. these days? Okay, Tim, thanks. So, uh, you know, so when, when we're going down and down and down and down, like you just did through atoms, then the nucleus, the electrons, the protons, the neutrons, the quarks, right? So you, you can't really see quarks as such. What you do is is you infer there that they are there because it essentially starts to make a, make a lot of sense if if you suggest that they are there. And from a mathematical analysis, you you show that the quarks are there because everything makes sense. And and some of those subatomic particles can then subsequently be seen, if you like, but kind of detected. In, in those big particle accelerators. So that's, so, so you know, the, the CERN and 
and all that, you know, where you smash things together and then, right, you know, okay. and then things come apart. So those mini, 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 mini school things are, are, are kind of detected rather than literally made visible. But in terms of biology, in terms of understanding the human body, we probably, we, we don't need to necessarily concern ourselves with that, that level of subatomic detail. The quarks in you are just the same as the quarks in a, in a piece of wood. I mean, I'm not belittling you. Why did you choose wood of everything? Uh, you could have chosen a diamond, you could have chosen platinum, but wood. It's true. The quarks in you are just the same as the quarks in diamond as well, Tim. Uh, uh, but the... Um, what, what what we need to do, biology works at the level of cells, really. And, and, right. and, and the cells in your body are doing stuff. And within the cells, there are protein molecules which do stuff. The genes encode for these protein molecules and they uh, then uh, uh, do, do things in how the body works. In terms of making medicines, instead of understanding your health, we don't need to necessarily worry about your quarks. We need to worry about what the proteins in the cells are doing. Now, like you just said, that you can only bend, make lenses to be so good. You can't, you can't make a better and better and better lens. There's some limit to that. Um, and in fact, it was um, uh, a scientist called Abbe, who, who I think it was in 1872, did a mathematical calculation to show that a microscope, like a light microscope, a microscope that you, you would be familiar with, cannot just zoom in forever. It, there's some limit to it. And he, and he made up this mathematical equation uh, to say that you can't see better than whatever it is. It turns out to be roughly half the wavelength of light. Never mind, you can't see better than a certain point. And that was a fundamental law of physics. So we can never make a microscope, a light microscope, better than that. But in fact, fairly recently, uh, some really uh, pioneering scientists have smashed that physical limit on how good a microscope can be and 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 so in the book i detail that journey it in fact begins with a japanese scientist Osama shimomura who was hanging out with his family uh uh um on on the san juan islands which are fairly near seattle and he was catching jellyfish with his family he isolated uh, a molecule that, that glows green inside jellyfish to allow jellyfish to communicate. And then much later, the, the, the journey moves around with that. That's uh, uh, the journey moves then to a guy in New York, Martin Chalfie, who then uh, gets the gene for that green glowing jellyfish protein. He gets it from a guy called Doug Prasher. He then uses that gene to make green glowing bacteria and worms. Uh, and then another guy uh, reads about this thinks this is unbelievable that we can make green glowing cells inside other inside animals and, and, and in dishes. And he decides to then build a new kind of microscope uh, in his mate's living room. Um, so this guy, Eric Betzig, he was, he was, uh, he had worked in Bell Labs. He quit his job because he was fed up with science. Um, in his own words, he was, he was unemployed. He had no prospect of a job. He was out with his, with his daughter in a stroller. He had a massive brilliant idea of a new kind of microscope that could be a fundamental law of physics. He then built it with his mate in his living room. They then chatted to uh, a woman, Jennifer Lippincourt, in, in, in the NIH to, to be able to build, rebuild their microscope in her lab. Um, and then him and her all together showed that this new kind of microscope works. And then they could see inside cells better than anybody have ever done before.
but what's it using? How's it detecting the? Okay, you know? how does it work, or or what, what do we or what do we see? How does it work? Yeah. Okay, so what happens is. Uh, let's say I'm trying to take a picture of a cell. So normally, you know, the light goes on the cell yeah. and we look down the microscope and we see a, what the cell looks like. But his idea was you put a very low amount of laser light on the cell at once, just a very small amount of laser light. And that means that instead of all of the cell glowing up at once, just a few of the molecules would by chance emit their green color. So the blue laser light is a very low level. And now not all of the cell lights up, but just a small number of the molecules would flash on uh, with this low amount of light. And you would get a big splodge of light that comes out of a molecule because the microscope still can't really see better than this fundamental law. But because you know that big splash of light just came from one molecule, then that big circle of light that appears on your screen, you know there was one molecule right in the very center of that splash of light. Then, you, so you put a dot right in the center of the splash of light. Then you switch off all those molecules and do it again. Now other molecules flash on in the cell and you put a dot in the center of every single flash that time. Switch all those off, do it again. And you keep doing that. And then you build up a picture of where every single individual molecule is inside the cell. And you've got an image of the cell that was better than physically you were allowed to do by the wow. normal rules of light microscopy. So that was his idea. It is true that a few other people had ideas that were, that were around the same time, uh, which I detail in the book, but you know, we're not, we, we won't mm. go through all of them, but that, I mean, that idea to me, you know, that idea is just, it's just brilliant. It's just it is, totally yeah. brilliant. It gives us a way of seeing better than a, what was, what was thought to be a fundamental law of physics. He built a mm. microscope that was smashing a law of physics. He won a Nobel prize uh for that in in 2014 i think it was and those are the kind of microscopes that we have in my lab when we started off in the beginning of this conversation talking about what we're seeing in my lab it's using these kinds of microscopes that allows us to see better than better than ever before as to what is happening what's the end game is the end game in your mind immortality is that what you're heading for what are we what are we thinking what are we what are we trying to do? Are we just trying to eradicate all disease? In in terms of the end game for the microscope, <laughs> <laughs> not the microscope, but, but what we always... need to do is see is see inside the human body. These microscopes don't yet work inside the human body; they only work of cells in a dish. Mm. In terms of the big big picture end game, um, I mean that's what we need to think about. See, I think that one of, the, one of the things that hopefully emerges from my book is that we're all doing all this exciting research and we don't want that to stop because it is exciting and it is fundamental knowledge about how cells work. But we're not sufficiently thinking about what it will lead to. And, and I think that's true. So even w what we spoke about, that there are two ways of answering that. One is I don't know it's impossible to predict 100 years from now. Like I said in the beginning, you know, no one could have predicted that the discovery of radio waves would eventually lead to like the internet and the radio. So they, at that level, it's really hard to know. But the level of what we could see in the nearish future, then it's definitely true that we're going to have more and more information about ourselves with which to deal with. And even now, this is, you know, that the BMI index is something we're familiar with, you know, and, and already now, 
you know, if you, if you're labelled obese, I mean, that sort of causes all sorts of problems to your to the psychology of who you are. To you know, we have we have thinness set up as a kind of superior attribute amongst people in society, essentially. Mm. And it, you know, is that is that right? I mean, surely if we look at enough things, everybody is subnormal in some way. So, for in the big picture, long term, I don't know. In the relatively near future, we're going to have an enormous amount of information to deal with. And that is going to lead to categorizing people in different ways. And we need to really carefully think about how we're going to use that information and what, how, how we're going to feel about it. You know, the BMI index is something that it's not, it's not that it's not useful. I mean, it's true that if you're on a path where you're likely to develop type 2 diabetes, for example, you might want to very specifically lose weight. But it's also true that it comes with a lot of baggage uh, for people to deal with. And so we need to think deeply about these issues. In your book, you say in the year 2100, they think that the reproductive technology, because of reproductive technology, one to 3% of babies will be born outside the, or made and born outside the human body. Now, that seems remarkably low for me because already embryo research means that we're looking at, we're, we're starting to look at embryos and go, hold on, there's, a, there's defects here, or we can do something about it, or we can't would you want to go through with this? This is, this is a real moral dilemma, isn't it? So yeah. when you get to the stage where you go, you know, you're talking a long time there in the future, you know, 79 years in the future, we could potentially go, if you're having a human baby naturally, that is so risky. Why are you being so risky with that child? That is like, like that's an anti-vaxxer thing again. That is insane that you don't know what you're going to be giving birth to. We need to do the test. We need to take the embryo, take it out, take the egg out of you, get the sperm, da-da-da. So, you know, do you think in the future we will be doing more medicine prior to birth than post-birth? I think that's a really big topic and it's it's really hard. It's not, you know, it's 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 not that I have the answers. That's that's the thing. You know, I I don't know what's the right thing to do. But what I do know is where what I know is where that research has come from, how we've got into this position. And I know that we need to be talking about it because I know I can see that already now is very complicated. You know, for some things where a particular genetic inheritance very directly leads to a life-threatening disease, then maybe it's clear enough for people to clearly make their own decisions. There are a few diseases like that uh, where you could do a genetic test and find out and make a decision. Huntington's disease, for example, and it's up to people to decide how what, what they want to do. But for many things, it's very complicated. You know, um, even something like, uh, you know, so one of the examples I talk about having spoken to, to someone who's who, a, a couple who's deaf is deafness is a very, it's a very difficult thing to relate to when we, we're not deaf people see themselves as part of a community. They, they see that their deafness, you know, can for some deaf people at least would add to their life in some way. And so, you know, and yet it would be in some situations, perhaps down the line feasible to, to pick embryos to, to be not deaf or, or and so it's very difficult to know how we should and, and, and again I don't have the answers uh, but I do know that we need to be thinking like that we need to really each of us come come to think about what you know what where how would we set up uh, society so that you know some diseases could be feasibly eradicated but but there's no there's no 
for most things, there's no clear line. There's no clear line to say on this side of the line, there's a problem and on that side of the line, it isn't. For most things, it's very much a grayscale. And, and how, you know, for most parameters around that health, it's, it's probabilities, it's risk factors, and it, it's very hard to make very precise decisions when the information is, is there, but, but it's not black and white. It's, it's, all, it's all grayscale. Yeah. Can you imagine though, you like someone going to say, you're having unprotected sex, nothing to do with disease or to do with what you just l- literally don't know what sort of baby you're going to get. I mean, that, that could be the future <laughs> where people are going, hold on, you can't do that. We need to make the baby out of the human body. You can't be making it in the body. So and I've always thought but we also is- don't want the, 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 the cloned army of Tim Lovejoys, right? Well, this is actually interesting because Dolly the sheep was cloned. Then we've got all those um, uh, lunatics in America cloning their dogs, like celebrities and stuff. And it's like, you know, the, if we can work out what consciousness is, surely the end game is just keep cloning me. I mean, you're like, as soon as my heart, rather than go, let's replace his heart, let me just take my consciousness and put it in the new 23-year-old Tim Lovejoy uh, <laughs> and uh, make him a little bit more muscly, a little bit taller. But, you know, <laughs> but we're not a million miles away from sort of like looking at that. That's why we have to start these conversations right now because yeah. when we can start going into embryos and messing about or we can start, you know, telling whether you're going to have disease in the long term, as you mentioned constantly in your book, um, we need to work out what what's ethical, I suppose, and what's morally correct for the human um, humankind. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Tim. That's why you know that's what that's what we got to be trying to think about. And I don't know. Yeah, and again, I don't know what the answers are, but I, but we should be discussing it. We should have. You know, I, I really think that. As a scientist, it's obviously my job to be sort of doing the research, but I'm happy, you know, it's great to, I want to talk about it with people because I want science to be part of our culture. And actually, I think that these questions that you're raising um, need to be talked about much more than than they are. Like, so for example, you know, right now, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, there, there's, a, there's a, a swell in the number of scientists that are on TV, on the radio, uh, and that's, that's good. But it is quite tightly focused on the pandemic. And I really want that to broaden because um, it's true that as we go, as we get used to, as we come out of lockdown, if, if things if things do go well, we don't know yet, you know, there might be more variants, but if things go well, I don't want the scientists to sort of disappear from the TV. I, I want them to still be on there because, because it's really important because there are so many issues that we need to be talking about. You know, yeah. Though you look, yeah, though you look really competitive, and I, and I noticed right at the beginning of your book, you do a you do a little bit to the, to the um, uh, just before your before your introduction, you do a little bit called a note to professional scientists saying, you know, I I, I apologize for this or that if I haven't included you in the research and you were part of it and all that sort of stuff. You know, I've interviewed a lot of scientists on this podcast, and it seems there's a lot of competitiveness between. Yeah, obviously, there's big profits involved sometimes if you find things, but but there's also this like there's sometimes if a scientist says something that everyone jumps on them and go that that's wrong, and it's quite a scary place to be a scientist, isn't it? Yeah, that's interesting, Tim. I, I, I do think that um, it can be quite a competitive uh, thing to do. And, and, and the, the research funding, for example, is limited. So Cancer Research UK has at some level a limited budget. The government provides money for medical research, but it's not endless. So 
the Wellcome Trust, for example. But all of these, so that in, there's an inherently a competitive thing because you have to suggest what experiments you're going to do. Others are going to say, oh, that's, that's terrible. That's great. And then you, so that it's inherently is competitive. Um, I, I think it's, it, I mean, I'm always trying to, Hopefully, I live by by the by understanding why it's competitive. The fact that it is competitive, and there's no easy way to make it not competitive at some level because the money is limited in how much research we can do. But hopefully, we can still stay soulful about it, so that even even though things are, you still have to compete to do certain experiments. For example, hopefully, it's it, I can still live knowing that the, that the endeavor that we're all doing it is still part of a community. And I think that most scientists, um, even if they've discovered something amazing and they win Nobel prizes, they'll be that no one could have done anything on their own. I mean, everything is building on everything else. Uh, and there's no, so that, so it's really, it's really true that even, even if someone discovered uh, a medicine and got very wealthy from that, even like, like you said, if, if some company, uh, came from that and, and it became a commercial product then even if that happens they couldn't have done that on their own they, everything all the knowledge that went into be able them being able to create that medicine came from literally hundreds of thousands of people working for for their whole lives in this realm of understanding whatever it is that that medicine uh, does if it was a cancer medicine how many people are working on cancer to understand it so it doesn't come from nowhere so it is competitive and, and i and I just really want it to, to not be nasty. Competitive, okay. I mean, I'm not sure how we can get around that, but it's definitely true that you don't want it to be a kind of mean environment. And actually people are, there is a bit of a, a movement now in science for, for this to really change. The Wellcome Trust, for example, um, have tried to, you know, make it one of their core aims to really change the kind of, the, the, the ethos and the environment and the structure of science to try and make it that people essentially are being kind while having to work in an environment that's somewhat competitive. I mean, I, but I, I mean, I'm not, I would have thought that it's probably true of most professions, though, even in the arts, even, you know, as, as a TV presenter, I'm sure you, you have to be somebody, they can't have everyone presenting Sunday brunch. They had to, there had to be an audition or some competitive process or something had to have happened for that to happen. So everything I suppose is competitive at some level. Uh, but, hope, yeah. but what we want to do is just keep it kind of soulful, like and kind and okay, you know, I suppose that's how it is. Yeah. When I see Anton Deck, I'm like, <laughs> I love Anton Deck. They're brilliant. Hey Dan, that's a good way to end it. I love your, uh, I love your enthusiasm for science, uh, and I and I love the book. And we haven't even got into the uh, football analogy in the instruction. And and honestly, that has changed the way I see science. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's worth buying just for that. The way he t t talks about um science and uh, puts it in a football analogy, so it's simple enough for me to understand. But it did change the way i view it all and everything really interesting book and uh oh it really gets me thinking so you know thank you so much we'll get we'll do the we'll do the fourth one hopefully very soon the fourth podcast thanks a lot dan thank you tims always great to be here thanks a lot